thread. A singular thought expanded upon. Thread is the podcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. For more information, log on to Quinley.com. Thread. Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 56. Well, this is a time of year that kids are graduating from school and getting ready to move on either into college or out of college or move up a grade. Everybody's looking forward to a great summer out ahead and uh, having a nice little cold snap here in the early part of May. It's a beautiful day outside and I hope you're having a wonderful day too. Today we're in Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 15 through 32, and you're tuned in to Thread. That's a Bible study for leaders, and we go verse by verse. We're just moving through Mark looking for messages from God that will guide us as we attempt to do our best in shepherding others, whether it's in our family, at school, in the office, or if God's given us a ministry or a nonprofit to run or whatever it is that you find yourself doing in the Lord's service and whatever place he's got you. Um, God's word has a message for you, and I hope that your heart is prepared to receive it today. So if you don't have your Bible, go get one, come right back, and we'll be in Mark chapter 15 on Thread. All right, moving into Mark chapter 15. Uh, we're reading today from Mark 15b, which is a way of saying second part of that verse, to verse 32. Um, we're well into the passion narrative here. We've been talking about the sacrifice of Jesus, what he went through, what it means, and what we can gain from that. And also, one of the things we want to gain is just a sense of worship and appreciation at the love that God has for us and at his willingness to give us a salvation that we could not get for ourselves. We, uh, most world religions are about making yourself righteous. About uh, Buddha said, you are your own savior. You know, there's no one there to help you. Your path to, to um, enlightenment is totally on your shoulders. In Christianity, we would say, no, the opposite is actually true. Uh, we have worked all our life in man-made religions to make ourselves righteous and make ourselves good, make ourselves uh, change and have failed. And God has come now in his mercy and has reached down to us and has offered us a righteousness, a change that will not only change our legal status with God from guilty to innocent, but something that will change us on the inside and give us what Peter calls in Second Peter a divine nature. Uh, the Spirit of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in us and making us changed. And so we're, you know, we're here to look on Christ as he, as he accomplishes this for us and to watch how it came about. Uh, in the narrative, we are now at the height of the physical violence. In verse 15, we're told that Pilate, uh, the governor, Gentile governor, placed there by Rome, uh, was fully aware that Jesus was an innocent man, and yet for purely political motives, 
He just didn't want trouble from these religious leaders who wanted Jesus dead out of envy. He knew that's why. He knew it was just jealousy. They just didn't like him challenging them or taking the people's attention away. And Pilate knew that's all in the world this was. And yet, holding the balance of justice in his hands, he just chooses uh, not to um, you know, take away a position from an innocent man, but to cruelly destroy the life, to kill and torture an innocent man just for his political purpose. Power is fallen, and justice is not something that we often get from man. And so here was Pilate doing a great act of injustice, and then to make it worse, he had Jesus scourged. Now, Roman scourging is not uh, a whip, not done with a whip like uh, an Argentinian whip or you know something like from Zorro. Uh, their their whip had an entirely different purpose. It had nine strands to it, and on the end of the strands were pieces of broken glass, uh, bits of metal bits of stone it was actually uh, thrown more from the side and wrapped itself around the victim then fixed into the skin and then was ripped free and that damage just basically was flaying the skin off of the victim many people died just from the beating and the bleeding that accompanied it Uh, and so Jesus is being scourged after Pilate scourged him to keep in mind he's been he's not been allowed to sleep all night he's been abused first uh, by the Jewish leaders while he was in their custody now Pilate has him scourged then he turns him over to the soldiers verse 16 and they lead him away and after having beaten him at that level which again just kills some people that undergo the torture of it they decide to add mockery to it. Now that you know, this kind of lets you see the spiritual dimensions of what is happening. Evil has conquered good, and the demons are just rejoicing. And the demon spirits behind our human uh, institutions are celebrating, and they they just cannot. Their glee cannot be contained. You know, here are soldiers that. They don't even know anything about this man. Why would they get so involved uh, except that they're being acted upon? So they call together the whole garrison and they clothe Jesus. That's 600 soldiers. And they clothe Jesus in purple. They twist a crown of thorns, verse 17, and put it on his head. And they begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They don't know Jesus, but they do know the Jews, and they hate them, and they deal with them every day, and their anti-Semitism now boils over, but it's more than that. I mean, 600 men, they called the whole garrison together. Now, they killed people every day. Uh, Crucifixion was an extremely common occurrence in the first century, especially in a uh, um, rebellion-prone area like Palestine. It's always been a hotbed. The Romans had a hard time controlling it. And, uh, you know, the soldiers didn't get involved at this level with everybody's punishment. And yet something has drawn them together. They're all coming out of the barracks, 600 soldiers 
are surrounding this one man who has already been scourged, and now it's the psychological pounding as he is again being mocked in his weakness. And what they do not know is that all Jesus has to do is call angels. It only took two angels to destroy the entire city of Sodom, and it's in the bottom of the Dead Sea. Um, All it would have taken was for him to lose his composure for a moment, to lose his temper for a moment, and call on angels, and that would be the end of all of this. He's being abused by the very Gentiles he's come to rescue. And yet he takes it. He bears up under it. He knows, and this is what um, the Father has prepared him for. He sent him visitations. Angels have ministered to him. Two have come back from the spirit world at the transfiguration. Um, Big figures from the Old Testament to speak to him and to prepare him mentally. He has spent the night in prayer to get his mind ready to go through this. He needs to be abused. And he's being abused for our salvation. He's taking our place, and the abuse that belongs to us is now falling on him. Uh, One side note, you know, these men are soldiers, and uh, every nation in a fallen world needs an army. We won't need them when the kingdom is here. Uh, But if you're in the army, your job is violence. And people whose job is to do violence to people can so easily become calloused toward that violence. You know, and these men just, you know, it, it, it has a... I've met people before who have killed a lot of people um, in the line of duty or out of the line of duty or whatever justification you can have for it, but they have you know, ambushed people, they've killed people, they've, they've taken part in that over and over again. And when you look in their eyes, it's just, I don't know, there's something different. Sometimes it kind of looks like a shark's eyes. It has affected their soul. You can't do that to another human over and over again and it not affect you. Even one shooting, a lot of you know policemen that are on duty for years, they shoot one person, kill them. They end up having to go for counseling. It stays in your mind. And these men have already become calloused toward causing others a great amount of pain. And so now they're without pity. 600 of them can just stand around this man and heap abuse on him. Verse 20 says, When they had mocked him, they took the purple off, put his own clothes back on, let him out to crucify him. Verse 21, They compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, uh, identifying Simon at that level is important because tradition says Simon was known in the Christian community. This event is part of his salvation story. How, you know, how did he meet the Lord? He met the Lord when the Lord was beaten, bloody, and about to die, and they laid the cross of Jesus on Simon, the soldiers did, and forced him to carry it. But Simon is known in the church. He's known by his sons, Alexander and Rufus. Uh, Paul greets someone named Rufus in Romans 16. We don't know for sure that's the same one, but 
Um, that's what tradition tells us. And it was because these records were written during the lifetimes of those who witnessed it so that it could be verified. And that's an important note in the uh, veracity of Scripture. These are not just fairy tales. You know, these are people who were known to the church who could verify the account as it is being given. Uh, the condemned man was expected to carry his own cross, but in Jesus' weakened state, he couldn't bear it up. And so they put that cross on the shoulders of Simon. Um, I had a friend in college, uh, Paul Walker, Paul Dana Walker, and he wrote a, he had written a song called Let Me Carry It Again. And it was the, it was the song coming from Simon as a believer and how, you know, what the honor of bearing up the cross of Jesus, the burden that Jesus has and helping him to carry that burden to the top of the hill. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his own cross and follow me. Uh, a cross was a symbol of being rejected by society. You can't be cool and be crucified. That's the whole point of the crucifixion. As they lay Jesus on the cross now to crucify him, they strip him naked to humiliate him and to reinforce the label that this is a man who is rejected by society. He is abandoned by society. No one is on his side, and he's not in with any of us. He is an outcast. And so they take him outside the city, and there they crucify him. And so Jesus says to us, as he's calling us to discipleship, you have to choose to take your own cross. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to embrace your rejection by this world and by the culture. And I think we've worked so hard in the last generation of the church to make it cool and trendy. And I mean, I go to churches now and we've got smoke on the stage and we've got a light show that goes with it. And, you know, it's a whole big pageant. And our pastors, uh, you know, are real careful a lot of times to watch the uh, how the fashion goes in certain churches, everybody has a certain style on stage. And, you know, it's just the whole cool, cool factor. And, I mean, I'm, it's fine. You should look as good as you can. and You shouldn't uh, compromise the message by people looking at you and seeing that you're so out of step with what is normal society that you can't, um, that you can't fit in. But on the other hand, the cross means I don't fit in. Uh, to be a Christian is to accept not being cool. And that's what kept me as a teenager from following the Lord. I think I understood it crystal clear. I think sometimes teenagers get it a lot clearer than adults do. Uh, I think a 12-year-old is extremely capable of making decisions about maintaining virginity and about honesty and about where the lines are in their life. And, you know, I think those are crystal clear ages. Everything is black or white. They see contradiction. They see hypocrisy. They see compromise for what it is. Um, we have to make our decision. And I knew as a teenager, a Christian is a person who stands against, stands by the Lord 
against the ways of the world. And it means I'm not going to be cool and I won't be acceptable and I won't be able to fit in. And I didn't want that. I was shy. I didn't have a whole lot of friends. And I, I just was not willing to bear that cross. And so I went on my own way all through high school. Had an extremely miserable life. Uh, only as I left high school, went to college, decided to live my own life. And it just took a few months until the Lord was calling me again. Only now I was oh so glad for... Um, I started to say a second chance, but in my case, it's more like a hundredth chance. Maybe you're like that too. As the Lord was just reaching back out to me, and I knew I had to be willing to not fit in. I had to be willing to be rejected. And if I would be willing, I could be a Christian. I could really make it this time because I'd failed so many times. And so I remember telling the Lord at 18, um, I'm going to go all the way this time. I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose popularity. I am going to stand up and stick out, even if it means I'm I'm not cool anymore. And really, that was the beginning of my Christian life. So if you haven't come to that place yet, I hope you will come there and embrace the cross and move ahead. And if you notice in verse 23, they offered Jesus a painkiller and he said no. I'll deal with this the way it is. And so, you know, don't try to avoid the pain of the cross. It's his cross, but we get to carry it with him. We get to join him on the cross. Thank God we're crucified to the world. And the world, Paul says, is crucified back to us. When we become now alive in the resurrection and we become a man or a woman in Christ. And that's an entirely new identity. Uh, the scripture simply says they crucified him. Verse 24, they divide his garments. He stripped naked. It is now nine o'clock in the morning. That's the third hour, first hour, 6 a.m. And they put the inscription above his head. This is, this is his crime. This is the king of the Jews. And, uh, you know, again, once, once again, you see the hand of God adding a prophetic element by by the minds of lost people. You know, it was the Romans who put this up. The Jews actually were offended by it, went and asked that it be removed. And the Roman, crooked, uh, two-faced, deceitful, unjust, Pontius Pilate, he says, nope, what I have written, I have written. Now, he doesn't know why he wrote that, but he wrote it by the hand of God. God can use a mule. God can use a rebellious man. God can use a spiritist. God can use anybody as his mouthpiece. It doesn't mean it's the path to choose if you want to be used by God, but it just means God is not limited. And so here now, uh, a man who has no business anywhere near the sacred has written a holy prophecy. This man really is the king of the Jews. Uh, verse 27, he was crucified with other robbers, one on his right, one on his left, and they they joined in the mockery. We'll see that later. Uh, this fulfills the scripture, verse 28. So many different prophetic passages uh, describe the events of that day hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. Uh, verse 29, uh, as Christ hangs, 
between heaven and earth, making a bridge between God and man, still they won't leave him alone. They continue to mock him on the cross. First, they misquote him in verse 29. Aha, you who destroy the temple. He never said he would destroy the temple. Um, he said, destroy this temple, talking about himself, and I will build it again in three days. So they misquote him. You who destroy the temple, build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. And see, what he had done was to offend their temple. And this is one of the, you know, every country has nationalism at some level. And, uh, you know, some countries have a pretty low level. They're almost embarrassed at who they are. And other countries, though, nationalism swells up, often in a time of war. Uh, I notice in the U.S. these days, because I, I don't live in the States, and when I come back, I see changes. So, you know, in the last 10 years since 9-11 and the, um, the whole war on terror, there's been a great groundswell of patriotism. Uh, when soldiers board airplanes, I still hear people. Uh, call out congratulations and thanks to them, and they honor them. I've seen people give up their seat. I've seen uh, crowds in airports just begin to cheer. And so, you know, there is a nationalism, and there's a good side to that. You know, you shouldn't feel ashamed of your people, and you should want to be a good citizen, and you should want to help your nation become the best nation that it can be. But nationalism, when it goes to an extreme is just another form of pride. Now, it's not just pride in me. It's pride in me and our people. We are the greatest people on the earth. And, uh, you know, Hitler took a country that had a very low sense of self-esteem and he boosted their national pride until nationalism led to the point that people no longer took an oath to the German state or to the nation of Germany. They took an oath to Hitler. And, um, you know, he had turned that to his own power. Nationalism is a good thing, but it, if you push it too far, it's just pride. Religion, you know, should balance a person, but religion, too much of it, it's pride. And when you mix nationalism and religion in their extreme forms, you have very potent poison. And Jesus has, um, he has dared to speak against the temple. And in doing that, he spoke against the nation, and now their nationalistic religious pride boils over, and they say, come down from the cross. Verse 31, likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved others himself, himself he cannot save. He saved others himself, he cannot save. They're gloating over the death of Christ, but I'd like to stop here for just a minute. They cannot hold in the dark glee in their sinful heart as they look at this innocent man, pounded and crushed and covered in blood and unjust wounds. Yet, you know, even in that moment, they unconsciously praise him and they validate the core mission of Jesus Christ to save others. They had to acknowledge that he was others focused. He was always working and acting to redeem or protect or restore the lives of other people. He had not lived for himself. And that characteristic, my friend, is found in every mature disciple. It is the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
saving others. It's a choice. It's a choice that God's servant must make. A choice not to save yourself. Not to save yourself the most comfortable spot. Not to save yourself constantly having um, uh, lots of personal space. And not to save yourself money. Not to save yourself the best seat. Not to save yourself. But instead to live in a servant's posture. Preferring the comfort the prosperity, the salvation of others rather than just further prospering yourself with all your efforts. And the question we've got to ask, you know, are we impoverished if we live that way? If, if we live to save others and to give to others, does that somehow make us impoverished? You know, if you ever try to live that way, not at all. You'll find that if you turn your time and your, ener- and your energies Uh, toward ministering to others, then our Father will personally minister back to us. Himself, He could not save. Now, He could have stopped this horror at any point, but being wounded for us was His ultimate mission. By His wounds, we were healed. Jesus saved others. It was His daily manner of living so let it be said of of our lives as people judge us she saved others herself she could not save he saved others himself he could not save that we would be known by the same way that they knew jesus that we live our life with an others focus to it well that's all for now i think god's word has given us a lot to think about and to worship him for And uh, I just am so grateful for what the Lord has done in my life. And I know you are too. If you'd like to write me, if you've got anything you want to talk about, or you'd just like to connect with me in some way, just write me personally, chuck at quinley.com. I'd love to hear from you. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. I'm Thread.